This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. We are here to talk about investing and life and everything else that occurs to Danielle and I. That's right. We, uh, everything that occurs to us. <laughs> yeah, we just go with the flow. I hope you guys exactly. enjoy it. Because maybe, investing maybe, is life. It's like me. <laughs> investing is life. <laughs> and, you know, maybe maybe some of the stuff that we've learned over these many years, like I've been investing for since 1980. Um, what is that? 20, 40, 60 40, 42 years. And I've been investing like for a raindrop in the bucket compared to you. And Warren Buffett has been investing since he was really a little kid, I think. Yeah. And he's pushing a hundred. Um, and I was struck when Charlie Munger said that Warren Buffett is a learning machine. He just keeps yeah. learning. Yeah. That's really, really wonderful. Which and I would describe like that. that. I would describe you as a learning machine. I no, think that's, honey, that's a, a great description. It is a huge you compliment. You want to put that on my grave marker? A learning machine. A learning machine. I don't know. Is that a nice thing on a grave? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not. Also, we liked him. <laughs> <laughs> he was fine. Learning machine. Fine. Dad Dad was a learning machine. We it worked. Him. The yeah. machine worked fine. Yeah, the machine worked fine. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm hoping I can uh, I can have the longevity of a Charlie Munger. You're going and, to. Way, way more. We've joking about this for the next 30 years. <laughs> I've been telling you yeah. and mom incessantly, people are living to over a hundred on the regular now, and you're not even old Pretty yet. Cool. So I think Pretty you're cool. gonna live to like easily a hundred and ten. You are so, so sweet. eat well. I like that. I like that. Eat well. Yes, which is not the subject of today's podcast. No, we have been talking about the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. A yes. A very serious player in Silicon Valley, which up and suddenly, a little over a week ago, collapsed. Yeah. And so has gone into FDIC protection and disappeared off the face of the earth. Right. All that fast. As of so we're recording this, I feel we you don't usually say when we record, but because of this news, I feel like we should say it. So we're recording it on March tenth. And so this episode now when you're listening to it is more than a week old uh just, which we have to do the bus. you what? totally just threw me under the bus what do you mean i just told everybody it was like a week ago 10 days ago i'm being very like you know oh i didn't I'm i thinking didn't catch what you were laying down and like oh you know today is like 10 seven days from the last podcast oh. and about eight days and yeah. now all of a sudden here we are recording it the day that silicon valley bank has collapsed all right Should so we... i'm gonna come clean delete this everything that i said later should we no. edit this no no <laughs> we're, we're i'm joking because up. we never edit. <laughs> we never edit. it is what it is we'll cut it out later no we won't <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we we we're gonna have to be honest about all this and say okay well they, it just happened and 
but we have a pretty good idea what's going to go on because the FDIC has been phenomenal. And we were just mentioning that last yeah. time um, that they're very, very solid to protect the reputation of banking in general so that you don't have a run all over the place. Now, I'm not so sure that the collapse of this bank isn't going to start a bit of a problem out there. Well, that's what's so um, interesting. So here's what I wanted to talk about at the end of last time. Publicly traded banks, to me, seems like an oxymoron. Why, Why are banks that? allowed to be public entities? It makes hmm. no sense to me as far as the incentives. So look well, at I what... I can tell you why. I can tell you why. I can tell you why, too, because they want to make tons of money, so they go public. Okay, great. No, 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 no. No, here's the reason why. Because they want to grow and public money gets them capital to expand, to invest. That's yeah. why. Okay, good. I mean, they can invest in marketing. They can but invest this is in what, bringing This is what concerns public. me about banks as a business. Hmm. Banks maybe are not a good business in which the incentives are to grow. Banks are are maybe the kind of business that need to be incentivized to be safe. And when you're a publicly traded company, you are, as you just very well said, you are incentivized to grow and grow and grow and grow some more and never stop growing. Mm, that's true. I'm not sure that a bank is the kind of business that I want to be doing that. Although, you know, there and when are a we lot of banks these... out there that are not so caught up in growth. There really are a lot of them who are public who don't grow much. Maybe and so. shareholders? No, they look really at are. Like, There's a lot of small banks. Look and at, they're publicly um, owned. And, the, you know, the shareholders get the benefit of the success of the bank and it provides a, a pretty consistent dividend and it's mm -hmm. not going anywhere and it's pretty safe. Mm -hmm. And so but that's probably a, a decent public investment. Point. I think so too. I'm happy to expand on it. Now mm -hmm. take, for example, <laughs> um, in an investment bank. What is, oh my God, why well, I'm having a complete brain blank. It's not Solomon Brothers. Goldman Sachs, Goldman fall. Sachs. Oh, so, darn it. I wanted to okay. get in there a word Go ahead. edgewise. Go ahead. Well, the reason I'm agreeing with you is because there was quite a lot of controversy um, at the turn of the 20th century in the early 1900s with the idea that there should be even a bank branch. Hmm. That you, the, the very idea that a bank was going to have multiple branches seemed to regulator, such as there were then, mm -hmm. that was a bad idea. That you, you needed to make sure that this bank was just this bank. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's what they did. And that way you contained the potential contagion of a depression Mm -hmm. which would wipe out these banks. But you have to remember back then, um, the Federal Reserve had did not exist at all. There was no power to print money. That gold was the only legitimate currency in the country and had been the only legitimate currency for ever since the founding of the country. Hmm. And so if a bank lent out money and then for whatever reason people all wanted their money back, that bank would go down, right? People would not get their money back until everything got paid off over time. Yeah. That bank would disappear. Um, 
And so it was really quite a controversy. And, and one of the people that caused the biggest changes in the banking regulation um, was Rudy, uh, Rudy Giuliani, was, uh, um, I forget his name, Giannini from Bank of America. It was really originally oh, Bank right. of Italy. Yeah, we talked about him when we read um, that great book that Jim McElvey, McElvey wrote, right? Yeah. About In- Square. Innovative, the the uh, innovation stack. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he was he was kind of a mentor to Jim, um, which I love. I love. I just love the idea of dead mentors. I just think it's so cool that they've got these books out there that you can learn from. I love like, that wow. too. <laughs> it's so cool. But but yeah, I read I read the whole history of that bank, and it, he he was extremely uh, instrumental in expanding the branches of what was then Bank of Italy. Um, into into um, San Joaquin Valley to hmm. get branches to the right, and then it was then it kind of became okay. Well, that's San Francisco. When you try to move into L.A., you can't do it. We're not hmm. allowing you to come down to L.A. with that nonsense from San Francisco, and uh, that took that took some real serious leveraging and a lot of years before they could do it. And maybe that's a wrong thing to do. Maybe, I I mean, so what it what made me start thinking about this question of whether banks are simply not suited to be publicly traded entities was when Lehman Brothers collapsed. Mm-hmm. There was um, investment banks used to be the kind of place, much like retail banks, where the owners were the partners and becoming mm-hmm. a partner in the investment bank was the absolute pinnacle of a career it meant you were set and you literally owned a piece of that company once you were elevated to partner Mm -hmm. and often you had to buy in but that's a different story and you also own a piece of the obligations of that company correct that's exactly right you own the benefit on the line that's right and so investment banks used to be very this is where the term white collar came from. Very white collar, white shoe, upper crust, every word you can... I never understood where the white can... shoe part came from. Is that I white think... shoe, white belt or something? Is What the hell? We Did can look bankers it up. wear white shoes? I don't know. Oh my God, Maybe. I'll look that up. Um, keep, keep going. I'm the point is they shoes. were like fancy people who owned a fancy company and put their money on the line when they made investments and as you just said held the obligations as well as receiving the benefits as soon as lehman brothers went public goldman went public that was no longer true for the partners of those banks the partners were no longer the only owners they suddenly had a huge amount of capital at their disposal again as you very rightly just said the reason to go public is to gain a huge amount of capital, which then helps the business to grow and grow and grow. So they suddenly had all this capital, which had not come from them. It was kind of like funny money. And suddenly the results of it were not as much on their shoulders anymore. Yeah, if they if Lehman Brothers collapsed as it did, they would lose their ownership, lose their capital. But 
it wasn't but the they same. Might not, but they might not lose their millions that they've got sitting they in the might bank not, that they've pulled out. Exactly. And I think, I know this is really like wishy-washy, but I just think the vibe, the feeling around it changes massively. Oh, I agree. So I agree. Yes, you're right. Like they technically lost, uh, you know their ownership and Lehman it's, Brothers whatever it's but honestly like the feeling becomes like they're playing as you said playing yeah. with funny money yeah it's like huh this isn't my money I have to worry about so now I can worry right. about and then causes and then here's the important part about being publicly traded not just that not just that then they have to answer quarterly to their investors and they have to put out their annual reports detailing exactly what they're doing, which, as we all know now, they fudged like crazy. So yeah. they went from being people who were solely responsible on the hook for any choices that bank made to being people who were simply temporary stewards and we're trying to make their own personal fortunes and get out. And who cares what happens to it in the future? And that changed everything. And, and in my opinion, led to the downfall of that particular bank, but also the problems we've seen in multiple other investment banks. And I think it's the same with these retail banks where, I mean, I, I take your point that there are some very well-governed, well-run small retail banks, community banks that are happen to be publicly traded and yet have not fallen victim to this kind of cycle. Right, right. But I'm not sure it's a good thing. Man, you're, for making, you're making a really, really good point. I mean, the, the reason that Giannini pushed hard to be able to, to expand is because he was running a really good bank yeah. with with really good rules of banking and mm -hmm. people who were building crops in the Silicon, in the uh, San Joaquin Valley of California, just kind of Southeast of San Francisco and, and East of San Francisco, they needed a good banker. They yeah. needed better bankers. And than they needed people bankers. who knew them and could say, mm -hmm. and that's what the, the essence of a local bank, right? Like, Oh yeah, I know you, I know your kids. They go to school with my kids. Like you, you meet your obligations. You're a trustworthy guy. Like I'm gonna grant you this loan that you're asking for, yeah. um, even and though these, these... like the numbers maybe don't add up the way they need to, and that's the kind of risk yeah. that somebody who has their own personal financial obligations, ownership of this bank on the line, would be very careful to make, but at the same time often would make because they don't have outside people looking over their shoulder. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. Like I get that it's it's helped banking expand being public and being able to have branches. I didn't know about that part of it. That's helped banking expand like crazy. But yeah, I don't wasn't, see that the incentives um, are driving it wasn't legal good for choices bankers to do that. What wasn't legal? Yeah. It wasn't legal to have branches. Ah, 
you couldn't you couldn't do branch. So this, this has been a quite quite. I, I man, you're making a really good point. Big is not always better. I no. mean, we have seen, for example, Walmart just ship U.S. jobs to China and Vietnam and India and all over the world in order to be bigger and bigger and bigger with the lowest and lowest prices. Yeah. And I mean, you just watch these big, big things, you know, start to just take over the world in ways that are kind of unexpected. You don't you think, wow, it's such a good deal. We can buy inexpensive things at Walmart. But you don't realize the un, unseen cost of that is all these jobs that are no longer in America. They were good paying jobs. Um, by the way, the white shoe thing. White oh, shoe did you firm, look it up? Yeah, what's that? Yeah, yeah, I got it. It's really quite cool. Um, it turns out that around 1910, these really light colored uh, buck Oxfords became popular at Princeton University. And Princeton University was considered the best dressed sort of male fashionistas of the period. And then tennis players, you can remember these old pictures of tennis players yeah. playing in long white trousers yeah, and yeah. white shoes. Yeah. They were playing in these white, these light colored uh, shoes. Golfers started to do it. Oh. And it kind of a suede version of that became really an in shoe at Yale University and other Ivy Leagues during the 1950s because it started to be advertised as a really cool thing. Advertisers just were pushing it. And then that became known as the Ivy Buck, the oh. upper class comfort on campus. That was one of the like the marketing lines, the <laughs> Ivy Buck, right? And though what happens is that like the popularity of these really prestigious schools and the association with all these golf and tennis, these really aristocratic sports, and white is very hard to keep clean. I was just going to say, if you're, you know, walking around in the dirt, you can't wear white shoes. It's going to be dirty. Exactly. And so someone who has white shoes is someone who's kind of can have throwaway elegance. It's like, yeah, you know. And somebody who's working in an office, not outside. I'm, I'm not going to muddy or scuff my. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that became. Known, and so the firms that had people who could be like that became mm. known as white shoe firms oh. full of white shoe men. Sure. And this goes, the first articles about that were traced back uh, by William Sapphire back to the 1970s. Mm. He's a columnist in the New York Times. Yeah, I remember. And uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. pretty cool. Thanks for the knowledge. Yeah, there you go. Um, so now these leading firms like J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and, you know, they're considered white shoe firms. Yeah. I'm glad to know that it isn't like the white shoes with the white belt thing, which is sort of uh, with a like in a leisure suit. Like I'm seeing a light <laughs> green leisure suit with a white belt <laughs> and white loafers. I'm just like with a gold bar across the loafer. I'm just going, that can't be right. Just, <laughs> that can't be what they're talking about. No, it was the Princeton fashionistas. Well, so what got me thinking about this, like this, uh, uh, this issue I have with banks being public, is how can Silicon Valley Bank, which, as I said last time, is deeply threaded into so many, like it's like if there is ever an establishment in startup VC world, Silicon Valley Bank is the establishment. And how can they be the ones that have messed this up so badly? But, you know, part of this I, is that they're... Ironically, you know why? Ironically, it's because they're crappy 
bankers. And I hear you. I hear did, you on that. And what they did was in order, this is what a, a bad banker would do, right? Is thinking they're taking no risk, they put a lot of money in long-term bonds that were very safe at a very low interest rate. Yeah. They weren't thinking ahead. They yeah. didn't ladder their bonds, right? Yeah. And take lower right. interest. They were trying to make more money with less risk and they just allocated capital badly. So really, they just are bad bankers and you hope that the bankers are better everywhere else in the United States and that we're not going to have yeah. this repeated over well, and, and over so again. maybe this this whole theory of mine has nothing to do with it. But I looked up when Silicon Valley Bank started and it was in the 80s. I think it was in 1983. I just saw it on their uh, annual report. Yeah, I think they got going right about when I was out. This is Yeah, they I were founded in 83 and they went public. No. When did they go public? Well, I don't know, but how much does it matter? Well, of course, it matters well, what to your I'm, thesis. What I'm trying to do is make an argument. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm trying to find it in the public. So um, while you're digging around. Well, I thought it was 99 because they had a note in here that they incorporated in Delaware in 99, which they probably did in preparation to go public, but doesn't actually say that's when they went public. So they, my point is they were private for, let's say, almost 20 years. And through the crazy 80s, through the crashes after the 80s through the 90s coming up like they have been around and they were private and then they went public 1988 darn it that messed up my whole thesis yeah it did all right they did they raised six million whole dollars in 1988 now i was in silicon valley in 1988 you were just a little tyke Yes. But I was out there um, building and funding a company that was doing document management software um, with the next computer, Steve Jobs' second, the second effort after Apple. That early? You were? Yeah. In 88? Yeah. In fact, I think 1988 is the year that Steve Jobs and I walked around his campus for an hour, oh. just the two of us, and ha- and he got to yell at me a lot. It was really fun. Yeah, I'm sure that was a good day for him. Such a good day. It's probably a good day for but you too. <laughs> <they're>, <laughs> it's really great. Um, and the company did its IPO that year. I don't remember anything about Silicon Valley Bank. That would have been a very, very small bank at that time. So yeah. it probably wasn't hitting my radar. But um, I think the law firm that helped them go through all this and helped build them um, was the major law firm in Silicon Valley at the time that um, everybody was using. And I, I Wilson Sonsini. Yeah, Wilson Sonsini. Well done. Well done. So, um, yeah, and that was all kind of getting going right there. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I, I think I should be worth a billion dollars at this point if I'd actually been smart. Because I was right on the spot for this thing. I was sitting out there when Silicon Valley was just getting really rolling. But it's sort of one of the ironies of life is that you, you only really know something's really rocking when you look back on it. It's like, yeah. at the time, it just looks like all these things are falling apart in every direction. Yeah. It's like everybody's failing and this business is going down and that one's going down and these guys are coming up and it just looks like craziness. That's what it looks and, like uh, all the time. It looks that's like what all it, the time. That's yeah. what it's looked like exactly. for the last 10 years, you know? Like, 
I've seen a lot of businesses not do well and you think they're going to and then they don't for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah, um, exactly. It just, and you sit here in 2009, 2010, 2011, which I absolutely went through um, with money and was very, re- I was very reluctant right then to be putting money back in the market. I just sort of barely started in 2009 moving money back into the market with um, the first class that we did that year just happened to be the first one picked a bunch of great stocks yeah. and they went straight up. And it's like at the moment it all looks grim so much of the time, even though the, and it's weird, the the numbers, the metrics we were using to kind of define that the market is bottomed were flawed then. It just like the, so much money was thrown into this market by the federal government and the federal reserve that all of the 140 years worth of statistics that we had prior to that turned out to not be worth a lot. That, that the whole thing was being manipulated from the top and it's very, and it, they're continuing to do that as much as they can today. You guys, I think we're, we're on, <laughs> I'm not, I almost hope I'm not right, but I'm going to lean on Ray Dalio here a little bit and just say that today it's different. I mean, their their ability to drop interest rates to zero and stipulate and stimulate the market are gone. I mean, that they can't do it hmm. because inflation is continuing to roll. In fact, they've raised interest rates to five percent, and I think any a student of previous giant inflation and interest rates rises would have probably guessed that that wasn't going to be even close to enough. And and it hasn't been. Yeah, it and, seemed to and, be working for a while, but lately. Yeah, briefly. Yeah. Briefly. Yeah. You know, they get one, a few data points and start cheering. But now it's like things are rocking and rolling out there and they can't seem to slow it down. So I I think, you know, we hold on to your seatbelts or is that the right word? No. Fasten hold your on to your hats. Fasten your seatbelts. Hold on to your hat. There you go. And uh, pay attention to where you're banking right now. Yeah. Um, how much money I mean, you have in it. I hope you all have a problem. All right, so fine. $250,000 too much in your bank. I hope so like too. That. Go open some more okay. accounts and spread it around. Um, yeah, put it in a brokerage account. Those things are insured for a lot more than two fifty. So I guess what, I'm, what I was trying to get at with Silicon Valley and banks being public feeling dangerous to me, and maybe, maybe I need to work a little more on my Silicon Valley thesis. Fine. But as an investor, looking at maybe if if somebody's invested in banks, are they making the kinds of decisions that maybe are more for growth or more for shareholders feeling happy about them meeting their quarterly estimates or to keep up with the Joneses uh, as far as making money hand over the hand over fist like uh, what what are what banks that you're invested in what are they doing and then secondly are there as you pointed out are there any banks maybe for somebody who still wants to buy banks because maybe this would be a good time to buy banks oh it might be a good time um are there banks that are behaving like they're still private even though they're public and what i personally would look for there are banks in which there is still quite a lot of leadership ownership, like considerable leadership ownership. Yeah, um, yeah I'll and, give you guys one to play with here, honestly, if you want to go take a look at it. 
Uh, full disclosure, I've got a very significant investment in this bank. Okay. So, you know, I understand it's coming from there. Um, and um, if I was still trying to put money into it, I wouldn't tell any of you about any of this. But I'm loaded up on it already. So I will say that um, one of the banks that's been voted one of the best 50 banks in the world is a relatively small regional bank that started in Arkansas called Bank OZK. It's public. The symbol is OZK. And the guy that runs it is very much like the guy Danielle's talking about. George Gleason essentially founded the bank. I mean, he, he, he took it over when he was like 30 years old, and he's now my age almost. Um, and he is, in my view, the Warren Buffett of banking. I mean, he's just brilliant. He's not trying to build a bank that's going to be the biggest bank in the world. What he does instead, and what I mean by being the Warren Buffett of it all, is that he loads up on cash and waits for an opportunity to take banks over that have screwed up the way Silicon Valley Bank did. Hmm. And in the last recession, he took over 12 or 13 banks. They mm-hmm. had the cash when nobody did. Mm-hmm. And the FDIC came to him and said, hey, we've just taken this bank and this one and this one and this one. How many do you want? And he, he basically took over all these banks. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way he grows the company. That's mm-hmm. how he grows it. It's just a spurt of growth and then nothing for 12 years and then a spurt of growth in the next recession. And I love how he does it. It's just freaking brilliant. And that bank just got hammered down. It was at... 46 or something now it's at like 36 it just got pounded so if i was looking at banks i'd be looking at that one so there's there's you'll rarely get me saying something like this on this podcast but it's a pretty cool thing and if that bank goes down and if it goes down to 30 dollars i might take it back i might buy more after all well to be clear yeah we all need to make Mm -hmm. our own investing decisions please do don't don't blame me if this Don't screws up. blame him if it screws up. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm getting at. And then I'd also add that I think another thing this has shown is that the really, really big banks, what they call the category one banks under Dodd-Frank, are required by law to have very intense stress testing done and have a much higher level of capital in reserve than the smaller banks like Silicon Valley Bank, which is a category, it's like the smallest level category four under Dodd-Frank. So um, if you're interested in banks, again, the bigger banks maybe would be something to look at. Yeah, and then just one, one final thought and from my point is that if you're investing in banks, you can see that just having a wonderful history doesn't mean anything. God, no except kidding, Except that they man. had a wonderful history. Oh, it's such you a You have to know who's running that bank, and that's hard to do. You've got to know that they're capable of, of making the right decisions, or they can do exactly what happened with this. And it happens so, fast. Yeah. I mean, look what look what these guys did at Wells Fargo. That's a gigantic bank. Yeah, good point. Tank just good by being bad point. management. See, that's why so, when people say stuff like, choose a company that an idiot can run because one day an idiot will. I'm always like, ah, like idiots screw stuff up a lot. (laughs) Yeah, but think about how much more they can screw it up if it's a bank than they can screw it up if it's a burrito. Yeah, well. uh, (laughs) You know, that's the deal. Yeah. So anyway, all right, cool, cool. We'll catch up on our news next time and um, and we'll get to Vista. Vista Outdoors, Vista Outdoors, Vista Outdoors. Okay, thanks everybody. Bye. 
Hi guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding, they really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.